God's guidance for this message. As I was mapping this series out, I posted a question to Facebook. Um, what do you see as the greatest threat to the 21st century church in America today? And the response was overwhelming, even if some of the answers weren't. Some of your answers uh, were excellent, but the thing that struck me about so many of the responses, white supremacy, racism, no, it's critical race theory, it's political correctness, no, it's the blending of religion and politics, false teaching, cultural secularism. What they all share in common is that they're all really just symptomatic of a much deeper problem. A few problems, actually. We discussed one of them last week, ignorance. Critical race theory does not itself pose a massive threat to the church. The problem is our ignorance. We don't know what God's word says about it, so we're unequipped to respond properly to it from a biblical worldview. And this morning, we're going to discuss another one of those deeper issues, compromise. Threat number two is compromise. Compromise can, of course, be a wonderful thing. Polly wants to watch Downton Abbey. I want to watch The Office for the fourth time. And so we compromise on Everwood. It's a good show. But compromise in the sense that I'll be using it this morning can also be defined as an agreement reached by adjustment of conflicting or opposing claims or principles, a dishonorable or shameful concession. And in that sense, when God's church adjusts her opposing claims and principles to be in better agreement with the surrounding culture, that is indeed a dishonorable and shameful concession. In fact, compromise is even worse than last week's threat of ignorance. As God's word tells us, whoever knows the right thing to do, James 4, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The only thing that worse than not knowing what God's word says is knowing it and failing to do it for the sake of compromise with the world. Ignorance of God is bad. Ignoring God is worse. Remember how Jesus warned those in Capernaum. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Capernaum, you have no excuse. You witnessed my miracles personally. Sodom may at least be able to claim ignorance, but not you. This is why the Bible claims that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we know too much to be without excuse. We have no excuse not to obey the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil from amongst you. And that was another common theme of my Facebook poll. Many of you rightfully commented that the greatest threat to the church today is the church. And my reply was, you're going to have to be more specific. All seven of the threats that we're going to cover in this series are more internal than they are external. We don't have to look out there for the greatest danger to Christianity just need to look in the mirror. As Oz Guinness says, our biggest problem is not wolves at the door, but termites in the floor. Let me try and explain how this happens, how a church 
compromises its biblical worldview over time. Let's say that you're planning a church. and Your vision is to reach all of St. Louis with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It seems noble, biblical even. But what you're going to discover pretty quickly is that all of St. Louis doesn't want to hear about Jesus. But what they may join you for is really good live music. A really funny, engaging, positive, feel-good message. It may join you for a sense of community, a place to make friends. But you're definitely going to discover that there are certain things, certain topics that they do not want to hear about. They will not hear about. In fact, you bring them up, it may actually be a stumbling block to their being able to hear the gospel. And so you begin to ask yourself, okay, what, what do they just have to know about Jesus and salvation? And then what's all the other stuff in Scripture that really just gets in the way of that? The stuff in the Bible that's tripping people up. You may not literally rip pages out of your Bible, but there develops this sort of de facto don't ask, don't tell policy with regard to many passages of Scripture and topics over time. And what happens is that as the surrounding culture becomes more and more anti-biblical, Jesus said the world is supposed to hate you, John 15, because you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. But as the church instead makes concessions for the sake of relevancy to and, and supposed witness to the world, over time the church becomes virtually indistinguishable from the world. The church compromises so many of its principles and its values and its convictions that eventually it can't remember what it stood for in the first place. And a church that stands for nothing will fall for anything. Now you've got tons of people coming. You've got all of St. Louis. You're reaching all of St. Louis. You just forgot what you're supposed to reach them with. That's why at West Hills, in God's word, our vision is to make disciples who will go reach St. Louis with the good news of Jesus, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. All, even the stuff about wives submitting to their husbands in the 21st century, even the Bible's outdated, backwards, oppressive sexual ethics, even the part about hell, and nothing shuts down a conversation like bringing hell up. If you want to reach all of St. Louis, you better not Mention that four-letter word. Better not mention sin. The gospel is offensive. Who are you calling a sinner? I'm not coming to your church. So we make compromises. Well, not at West Hills. Some of you might get upset by some of the topics we'll touch on this morning, topics that many churches ignore. It's not worth dividing the church over, they'll say. It's not a hill worth dying on. Friends, God's word is my hill. Anything that scripture speaks to clearly for me is a topic that's worth, worth speaking to clearly. What's the cure for compromise? I've got five of them for you this morning. Actually, God has five for you in his word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, that's where we're going to camp out. As you're finding it, let me just give you your overarching main point for the morning. All five of these points can be sort of summarized underneath this larger umbrella antidote to compromise. If you want to avoid the temptation to compromise, 
You need to fear God more than you fear man. Fear God more than you fear man. Proverbs 29, 25 warns us that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The Apostle Paul reflected on this in his introduction to his letter to the church in Galatia. Paul knew that what he was about to write, you can go read Galatians this afternoon for yourself, he's pretty harsh. Paul knew he was going to upset some folks, so he just explained on the front end, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, if I was a people pleaser, I wouldn't call you out on your sin in this letter. That's not an effective way to make friends. But Paul says, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to serve Christ. So I'll just admit the same this morning, brothers and sisters, as lovingly as possible. I'm not here to please you. Do you know that my preaching is not for you? I preach to you, but I preach for God. He's my primary audience. On Sunday mornings, I preach for God. I'm so grateful that God has freed me, for the most part, from the desire to please people. God knows that I have got plenty of other sins to keep me busy without throwing that one into the mix. How exhausting for for those of you people-pleasers out there especially in today's world, as divided as we are to try and get everyone to like you, I don't know how you do it. It's exhausting. No thanks. I love y'all. I do as your pastor. But frankly, compared to what my God thinks of me, your opinion matters very little. It pales in comparison. Because I don't have to stand before your throne one day. And so I'll warn you, I've got five points this morning, five cures for compromise for you. And in our application of each principle, we're going to acknowledge a specific issue on which the church, hopefully not West Hills, but many in the 21st century American church have compromised. Some of the biggest compromises we've made as a church in the modern era. And I'm going to tell you up front, some of you on the left might get offended by a couple of the issues I touch on. Some of you on the right might get offended by a couple of the issues I touch on. If your worldview is shaped more by scripture than your political allegiance, you will be fine. (laughs) You'll appreciate all five, even if they touch a nerve, even if it means that you have to leave here this morning confessing and repenting of your own compromises. The Bible speaks clearly to every one of these issues. Will you listen? Will you submit yourself to God's word this morning? Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We thank you that you've not left us without wisdom and guidance and truth, uncompromising truth in this dark world. Father, we confess and repent that all too often we have had itching ears. We have accumulated for ourselves teachers and teachings that that suit our own passions, that tell us what we want to hear. Father, this morning we pray that you would tell us from your word what we need to hear, that we might be changed. Would you give us a spirit of humility, conviction, remorse for sin, broken and contriteness of spirit, repentance, turning from our sin, turning back to you, because we can trust in the promise of your word that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just. Forgive us our sin, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for the healing and reconciliation, restoration, and new life that we have in Christ. In his name we pray this morning. Amen. You may be seated. How to avoid the threat of compromise. Number one, remember your judge and your king. Remember your judge and king. Paul opens his fourth chapter of his second letter to his disciple Timothy by charging him, dia marturamai, it's a strong verb in, in Greek, as I earnestly, solemnly adjure you in the presence of God, Paul says, Timothy, protect yourself from people-pleasing by rem- remembering that you are always in the presence of Almighty God. Others may come and go. They don't like what they hear this Sunday. They'll leave the church. You're always in the presence of Almighty God. He is omnipresent. He sees and hears everything. And Moreover, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, not only is Jesus watching now, but you're going to stand before his judgment seat one day in heaven, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul says we make it our aim to please Christ, for we all must appear before his judgment seat so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Not just sinners, we all get judged. All will receive what is due for what you've done in the body. So here's an application point for us this morning. Let's start with abortion. Let's start with this issue. Seems appropriate. Why do so many churches today compromise on the issue of abortion? Why will the majority of evangelical churches in our country not recognize Sanctity of Life Sunday today and not touch this topic with a 10-foot pole? Because it's so controversial. It's so sensitive. We might, we might have women here who have had an abortion, men here who have encouraged one, maybe even doctors who have performed one. What about all the cases where it gets so complicated, rape and incest and the threat of the risk of the life of the mother? What about the mother? What about her rights? What about her body, her choice? 
And if we know some women are going to do it anyway, doesn't it make sense to provide a safe, legal alternative? So we compromise and we allow the, the world and the world's questions and the world's arguments to, to dictate the discussion instead of going to God's word for its answer to one very simple question. That's the thing. The world has convinced many in the church that abortion is a complicated issue. It's really not complicated at all. It's a very simple issue. Is it easy? No, hardly. There's nothing easy about unwanted pregnancy, about adoption. You got the the three-minute version on the video this morning. I guarantee you there was a lot of heartache and and crying and, and sleepless nights, right? There's nothing easy about adoption or being pro-baby and pro-mother, not just pro-fetus. This is all difficult, but it is simple, straightforward, not complex, because the only question that matters with regard to abortion is what is in that mother's womb. Is it human life or not? If if, if, If a fetus is just a clump of cells, then no justification for abortion is even necessary. Go ahead, scrape it out. Suction it out, poison it out. But if that fetus is a living human child, then no justification for abortion is adequate. A woman doesn't have a right to harm the child in her womb any more than she does the child outside her womb. It's not about her decision with her own body. It's about another person's body. The Bible's crystal clear on this. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Human personhood begins the moment of conception. Exodus 21 prescribes the same death penalty for someone who takes the life of a baby in the womb as for someone who commits murder. God considers the unborn child just as human as a full-grown adult. Psalm 51, Luke 1, Galatians 1, God's word is clear from start to finish. Human life begins at conception. That means abortion is murder. It's that simple. As much as we might not like to hear it. One of Satan's greatest tricks is convincing us that sin is just the bad stuff that we do. That's only the half of it. I'm convinced that when I stand before Christ's judgment seat one day, I'll probably have to answer far more for the good deeds that I left undone than for the bad ones that I did. Yes, one in four women will have to answer for her abortion. But three in four won't. And four in four men won't. But you know what we will all answer for? What did you do about it? What did you do about it? Did you settle for voting for the candidate who claims that he hates abortion as much as you claim that you do? Go ahead and vote. But if that's the only answer that you've got when God asks you what you did personally about the most egregious form of evil in our society today, let's call it what it is, the genocide of the most vulnerable segment of our population. If that is your only answer, I voted. And I'll be honest, Christian, I I fear for you. Maybe not for your eternal salvation. I can't imagine, I cannot imagine that you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 
on your way in. We've got to do more. We have to. Encourage you, implore you, exhort you. Visit the Thrive Table on your way out today. We're going to have a launch meeting for our new life team this coming Saturday morning. You can email me if you'd like to join us. We can do so much more collectively as a church. We have to. We will. Number two, the second way that we avoid compromise is by preaching God's word always. Paul exhorts Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to preach. Caruso is to herald, to proclaim. I'll be honest, when I prepared the outline for your bulletins, I, I intended on exhorting you to go and preach God's word. Timothy was a professional preacher. Some of us are called to that, but aren't we all called to preach the gospel? I thought so, but a more careful word study of the New Testament this week revealed that no, most of you are not, in fact, called to preach. Preaching is the public declaration of God's word by a commissioned agent of the church. So we're all called in, in scripture to witness, to evangelize, to make disciples, but not to preach. So perhaps you might adjust your bulletin to read, be preached, be preached God's word always. You need to make sure that you are hearing God's word, the, the unadulterated, unedited version of God's word heralded, proclaimed to you regularly. Sunday worship, this is why it's so important. It's not optional. What do we preach? What do I seek to preach from the pulpit at West Hills? The word. What word? God's word. Remember the context, just three verses earlier, Paul reminded Timothy that all, all scripture is breathed out by God. So we preach this, not human words, but God's word, not because it's popular, but because it's God's. Friends, if it is really true that God has revealed himself, that he has spoken to us in intelligible human language, then why on earth would we settle for anything less? Why would you settle for a, a feel-good, you know, musings of a charismatic pastor? It's garbage. I want to hear from God. You deserve to hear from God, even when you don't want to. Paul says, preach it in season and out of season. In other words, whether it is convenient or it's inconvenient. Whether I want to preach it or not, and whether you want to hear it or not, makes no difference. There are a lot of messages, a lot of topics, a lot of passages, frankly. I'd rather, in my sin, not preach, and I suspect there's a lot that you'd rather not hear about. It doesn't matter. Preach the word. How much of it? Can I at least cherry-pick the parts that I like best? Not if all of Scripture is God-breathed. That's why Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. All of it. Yes, even the parts we don't like. Maybe especially those parts. Here's some application for us. There's been a lot of cherry picking going on the last four years in the evangelical American church. A lot of compromising. A lot of justifying and rationalizing and excusing of sin. For a lot of Christians argue God worked through Nebuchadnezzar. He was a pretty bad guy. And my response is, yeah, but that doesn't mean if you were an Israelite back then, you should have voted for him. Sure, God can work through anyone. God works in Scripture through hard-hearted pharaohs and talking donkeys. We pray he's going to work through one the next four years. 
That's all beside the point. That just proves how awesome our God is. The question for us, brothers and sisters, is what do we expect of those who would govern us? I know what we used to expect, not perfection. Every candidate is imperfect, just like every pastor, every Christian is imperfect. But I can take you to the whole counsel of God. I can show you what I think used to be the bare minimum expectation from evangelical Christians for a candidate running for the highest office in our country, a person of integrity, Proverbs 10.9, who is truthful, Proverbs 12.22, not sexually immoral, 1 Corinthians 6.18, not proud, Proverbs 8.13, but shows remorse for his sin, 2 Corinthians 7.9, one who is kind, Micah 6.8, and selfless, Philippians 2.4, who loves righteousness. Psalm 106.3. What I'm saying is that character used to matter in public office, and it doesn't anymore. And the so-called self-professing evangelical church is as much to blame as anyone. We compromised. I'm honest enough to admit it this morning. Hold up the mirror of God's word and admit it. Are you? Number three, we avoid compromise by being exhorted fully. Be exhorted fully. Paul admonishes Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What do you notice about all three of those imperatives? Reprove, elenko, means to correct, to expose, to show to be guilty. Rebuke, Epitimao, to reprimand, and exhort. Parakaleo means to urge or caution earnestly. Literally, it means to make a call from being close up and personal, to tell someone what to do because you either know them so well, close up and personal, or you know God so, so well, or both. The thing that stands out to me is that none of them sound particularly fun for the person on the receiving end. Do you enjoy being corrected, being reprimanded, being exposed as being guilty, being told what to do? Any parents in the room? How many of your kids just love being told what to do? Being reproved, corrected, disciplined. The Bible's got a word for the thing inside them that causes them to hate that. It's called sin. Guess what? It lives in you too. It's the same thing that makes you hate being corrected and challenged. Proverbs 12.1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> is that direct enough for you? Proverbs 6.23, the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Proverbs 9.8, do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So I want to give you an opportunity to love me this morning. I'm going to assume that you all want to be wise, not stupid. Let me reprove you. Let me exhort you. Maybe not with complete patience and teaching, as Paul calls for. I'll do my best. I think that what the world needs most from the church right now, friends, more than ever, is followers of Jesus who are willing to listen to those we disagree with, 
to love them the way that Jesus loved, tax collectors, prostitutes, and more than anything, willing to prove that love by laying down our lives in selfless service to others, especially the kinds of people that the Bible singles out and draws attention to time and time again. It's the least of these, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner. This is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Deuteronomy 27.19, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. If it wasn't in the Bible, you'd call it liberalism, the welfare state. Brothers and sisters, it's not okay that the world thinks that the church is pro-fetus, but not so much pro-single mother trying to now care for the baby on her own. Are we pro-fatherless? Are we pro-orphan? Are we pro-widow? Sure, we can debate the politics and the policies I'm as skeptical as anyone of the government's desire to and aptitude for caring well for the least of these, but that's all the more reason that the church needs to step up and fill in the gap. Go ahead and and vote for small government, but then what are you doing personally? What are we doing collectively as a church to make sure that we are caring for our neighbors? I'm not talking about the nice family and the 3,500-square-foot house across the street. I mean like Jesus' definition of neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the person who makes you feel uncomfortable, who lives in places that you wouldn't be caught dead. If West County is, is Jerusalem, then East St. Louis is Samaria. That's who we're called to love and serve. Church, be exhorted this morning. The world doesn't need more keyboard warriors. It's got plenty of those. Talk is cheap. Type is even cheaper. What the world needs from you and me is to tangibly serve the least of these in the ways that Jesus did. Number four, we avoid compromise by bewaring our itching ears. Beware your itching ears. Paul foretells The time to come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And it's not just that a time will come, future tense, this temptation to compromise may get stronger as the culture gets grosser, but we need to understand that this is how it's always been. Remember Ecclesiastes again. There's nothing new under the sun. God decried his people's itching ears 2,600 years ago through the prophet Jeremiah when he said, the prophets prophesy falsely and my people love to have it so. They love it. In our sin, we want to listen to those who will tell us what we want to hear, who won't challenge us, who will suit our own passions. We're willing to turn from the truth and wander off into myths in order to find it and hear it. 
We, of course, discussed this in, in depth last week, so I won't go into too much detail this, this morning, but last week we, we discussed it primarily in the context of politics, you know, how we seclude ourselves in our little echo chambers, watch the news channels that, that give us the version of the truth we want to hear. But I'll remind you once again, on, on, this is not a, a new issue in the last two months now. This is not a right-wing or a left-wing issue. You know, the, the Democrats invented not my president four years ago before the Trumpers picked it up. Let's just consider even more dangerous myths masquerading as truth this morning. Even more dangerous than the, the political myths or the theological ones. This is where it really matters what we believe. Myths like universalism. If God is truly merciful and loving, he will make sure that everyone makes it to heaven regardless of their faith. Myths like the prosperity gospel. God is so loving that he has promised to bless you in this life with health and wealth and happiness. But let's bring it even closer to home for maybe some of us at West Hills. If God is truly sovereign, you know, if, if God's the one who decides who's going to trust in him, that means I don't really have to worry about sharing my faith with others. Some of us may have been, if we're honest, converted to reform theology out of evangelical laziness. If God predestines and elects people, that gets me off the hook. I like that theology. We can believe the right things for the wrong reasons and with the wrong consequences too, by the way. Calvinism, rightly understood, makes for the most passionate, dedicated evangelist. Friends, whatever it is that your itching ears want to hear this morning, I'm sure it hasn't been this message. <laughs> Touched everyone's nerves. You need to beware. Reproof, rebuke, exhortation, they aren't always fun. But God assures us, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Good parents discipline their children. They correct them. Correction is good for you. Being told what you want to hear, more often than not, isn't. Lastly, number five, expect conflict. We can avoid compromise by expecting conflict. Why does Paul encourage Timothy to be sober-minded, to endure suffering in order to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill his ministry? It's because Paul knows that the gospel is offensive. Paul knows that when you preach it, you better expect to ruffle people's feathers. Quoted this already, 1 Corinthians one twenty three. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. If you want to upset people, tell them they're sinners. Tell them they need a Savior. Expect that to ruffle feathers. 
Jesus promised as much. He said the world is going to hate you if you stand for him. John 15, 19. But he also promised, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let's just put it in perspective for a minute, okay? We've got brothers and sisters all over the world this morning fearing for their lives as they gather in Christ's name. Because if they're found out, they'll get thrown in jail. We've got brothers and sisters being killed for their faith. Being unfriended on Facebook by a high school acquaintance who doesn't like your Jesus post is not persecution. Right? If, if we're not willing to make things a little awkward with our neighbors for the sake of them knowing Jesus, just remember Jesus warned us, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father. I don't know about you, friends, but that's a compromise I'm not willing to make. Listen, no one likes being told they have cancer. But you can't fix a problem you don't know you have. Friends, we've got the cure. We know him by name. We know the cure for sin, for this terminally fatal sickness of sin. But how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? Will you tell them? Will you tell them this week? Or will you compromise? Let's pray.